welcome back to another episode of the book club uh, with the decent dialogue guys and uh, i'm scott and this is greg and this week we are going through chapter seven and last week we did chapter six and it was a tough one uh this week i think it's a it's it's still a tough topic for sure but it's a little bit more uh more doable and it's not nearly as intense uh as last week's uh chapter was but uh yeah i'm excited about this conversation with greg and uh, hopefully we can learn something from it and hopefully uh we can all be better for it cool that was great scott that was fantastic yeah, I am excited to jump in again this week. Last week, I was not feeling it. I did not have a lot of energy. Uh, I apologize. And I'm apologizing again on Monday for the lack of energy I had, especially on our Monday episode. But I am feeling it tonight, um, ready to tackle this and hopefully an engaging way. So I want to start out and give a little summary of Chapter 7. Chapter 7 moves on kind of as we've talked about, If you if this is your first episode you're jumping in on here is that we're walking through Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby, who is doing a historical survey on racism in America, explicitly trying to also just kind of point out and see how the Christian church, um, you know, just Protestant and Catholic, like how they how they interacted with slavery and, and racism and how it persists even today. And he's been going era by era so far. Last week was kind of the area of Reconstruction, into the like into the beginning of the 1900s this week was more i mean a little bit of the same like post-civil war but mostly moving on towards like 1900 to like 19 i mean even up into like the 70s i mean it was kind of all over the 20th century but yeah this one was it was good because it a lot of the things that you hear today for arguments of just racial inequality i feel like he touched on because i hear a lot of arguments of redlining or legislation and things like that that are working against black people in in America like you see the roots of that in this chapter and you begin to see kind of where they come from and even explaining what they are like redlining is something I've heard a ton about but it was good just to see a simple explanation of what that is you know just little things like that there's a focus on this chapter talking about some of those things but also in light of you know racism in the north as well as the South. A lot of people just kind of contribute racism to the Southern United States, especially post-Civil War. I mean, especially today, people, there's still a lot of people who fly Confederate flags and bring the stigma down to the South that like everybody's still racist, you know? And he makes the point that like, it's not just the South, it's in the North too. And it may look different in the North, but it's still there. And Black people, unfortunately, experience racism racism in every region in our country and so mm-hmm. that's kind of a general overview of the chapter um again if you guys have not had the opportunity to pick up this book i would highly recommend it uh it's really good just being able to educate ourselves on the history of america and and kind of what our black brothers and sisters have had to go through and kind of helps shine some light on why we are where we are at today so but with that scott i'm going to kick it back to you for some points yeah, and, and something you said there, just I want to reiterate that no matter how much or how little you agree with this book, hopefully it's opening your eyes to something uh, that you've never really thought about and that you've never really considered. And through doing that, you're growing in Christ, uh, as I believe Greg and I are. Uh, so I just want to kind of reiterate that encouragement that Greg kind of 
brought up. But for this week, uh, the first thing that I wanted to talk about in this chapter, I was found on page uh, 116, uh, kind of towards the top. Uh, it's talking about something a Princeton theological, uh, our professor from a Princeton theological seminary said uh, about the social gospel. I'm going to kind of read it. It's, it's a couple sentences, but I really want to drive this point home. Uh, he says, to those who are crying for equality and opportunity and improved material conditions, he admonished, the church repeats the divine message, ye must be born again. His statements both echo and foreshadow the sentiments of many theological conservative, conservative Christians who insisted that converting individuals to Christianity was the only biblical way to transform society. Fundamentalists dissuaded other Christians from certain forms of political involvement and encouraged them instead to focus on personal holiness and evangel evangelism. Uh, and that's something I, you know, you hear that a lot today even. And again, this is, it's a very historical book that this, uh, that he's going through and the way he does it. But like Greg said, uh, there's a lot of parallels to even today. And I think this is one of those big ones that really jumped out at me uh, is how people just say, oh, don't get involved in politics. Don't, uh, it's not about being a social justice warrior or it's not about trying to do this or that. Uh, the only thing that can bring equality and bring justice is Christ and being a Christian. I think there's a lot of truth in that, obviously. But at the same time, when we just brush it off and say, oh, I don't need to wor be worried about, you know, social justice, because if everybody becomes a Christian, then everything will be good. And that's, you know, that's the end all be all. Uh, and I think that takes a lot of the responsibility uh, away from us and puts it on to, it's hard to put into words almost, but if you look at it like this, how do you love your neighbor? Sometimes the best way to love your neighbor is to vote for legislation that will help your neighbor better themselves uh, or something along those lines. Maybe being uh, a loving neighbor means getting involved in politics and that you're going to influence and uh, uplift the day-to-day -day life of the communities in your area uh, and different things like that. So you can't just say, I'm going to completely remove myself from anything and everything and the only thing that can be good for these people is if they become Christians and that's, you know, that's the only thing that we can do. So I'm going to remove all responsibility uh, away from me for being a good person. And I don't know, that was just something that really jumped out at me uh, and seeing that it, this is a, a way of thinking that started so long ago. Yeah, I think it's, this is actually something that caused me pause to look into because it is, it's, it's a little more complicated. And I, and I was actually kind of surprised looking at this because there's a new wave, especially like out West and some more liberal communities of the social gospel. You'll hear that term kind of coined, which is very heavy on, you know, getting in, getting involved in the community and, and meeting the needs and, and like that, you know, invite all the poor in, which is fantastic stuff. Um, but sometimes it can lead to people it can lead sometimes to people meeting only needs. Like it can lead to people just looking at the Bible as not like taking the emphasis off of the gospel. Sometimes like it, it can lead there. 
Um, and so I think it, there's a diff, there's definitely a difficult balance to walk and something we need to be aware of. John Mark Comer in Bridgetown, I don't know if you've listened to this, Scott, but he just did a, he's going through a series of what is the gospel. And his latest one, he talks about social gospel a little bit in there too. But just talking about how like the fundamentalist also, as you said, like they don't have the full picture, you know, because they're just ignoring the needs of, they're just ignoring the needs of people who are suffering, saying just give them the gospel, but while not also like meeting them where they're at and meeting their needs, which is very important. And something Mm. that, I mean, Jesus did, like Jesus preached to a huge crowd and then didn't want to let them go home hungry. You know, like he, like he met the needs of people all the time and and healing sicknesses and disease and and meeting their needs. And so there's definitely a balance in between these. And I think um, he actually says on page 116 as well, that. Well, I think something too, to bring up it's maybe you're this, this is going to be the point you get to, but it's it, it can be both and it doesn't have to be either or yeah what well, the what i was trying to say i can't find it in here but i'm pretty sure he said most in the black community was not like it was it, like people on the fundamentalist yeah, list and the social gospel sides would like look at the two extremes but most people most people in the black community did have a well-balanced like yeah view of it he said for their part black christians in the 1920s and 1930s did not fit neatly into either fundamentalist or social gospel categories. Yeah, exactly. And that's I think it's what, easy to, to throw people into one category and label them as extremist yeah. or wrong, you know? Yeah. But, that's, and that's, you see that today uh, so much just in the political realm uh, in every realm of life. It's, it's never, it's never, you can never be a centrist. You can never mm-hmm. be a moderate. You have to pick an extreme side. And if you're, if you're on the opposite side of one person, then, uh, you're evil. And <laughs> it's like, that's just not the case. So, yeah, for my first takeaway here, I, it was just kind of, you kind of mentioned this on, on this already, but the, just seeing like a lot of these things that started coming out in the 19s and 1920s and thirties, like we still see them today. Like we still, like we see the root of some of the fears that you see in the news and the media and whatnot coming out today, the same way it was back then. Like I was, like 19 or page 120 they were talking about a um this guy who opened pepperdine or pepperdine college the mm-hmm. christian millionaire who made this big college um very segregated very teaching the, the ways of you know like not wanting not wanting to have a school that was dictated by the federal government but wanting one that emphasized, emphasized christian faith and they brought up the scopes trial which I don't know if you're familiar with this before or not, but like it was a huge, huge deal. Like people talking, yeah, people talking about evolution in schools and it like, there's a quote in there. It says like the scopes trial that 1925 had convinced many conservative white Christians that public education promised only to uh, inoculate their children with liberal social values and teach concepts that are not, that are not contrary to their interpretation of the Bible. That is hundred percent still going on today you know it's like we get over one thing and but there's always like there's always like i hear that argument so so much especially about college like it's well and that's that's i don't mean to cut you off but that's one of the things i really uh again this chapter has probably been the most for me kind of relating it to what's going on today and you know this guy pepperdine started this college to uh you know teach kids the christian way because uh, because the public colleges of the day weren't, and yeah, you can, it's a direct parallel to what's happening today. And they were so worried about their children going off the deep end when they go to college and turning away from the faith. But I, 
I have to look at that and say, is that so much the, the college's fault or is it a discipleship problem? Uh, and that these these kids are are being raised and then sent off with what knowledge, with what with what faith, like how weak must their faith be if the first year they're in college and they hear like some weird philosophy that they turn their backs on God and go to that. It's like that's not the fault of the school. That's a lack of discipleship for the past 20 years in that kid's life. Yeah. Well, I think it's a I think it's just a, re- a reliance that people have on the church teaching their children. Yeah. what they need to know instead of parents taking on discipleship but that, that's mm-hmm. a whole other question for another day that i'm not yeah. experienced enough to my son is too not old enough to disciple yet um uh, so i know it's gonna be a lot harder than we're saying it is yeah um, no for but, sure so i don't want to come across as no and i, I don't mean issues. to come across like i don't want to come across like that either but at the same time it's parents and all of these people are freaking out about the the college teaching them you know for four yeah. years when you've had 18 years to to teach them what you want to teach them yeah. and then if they if they're turning away that doesn't mean they have uh you know i, I don't know it's, it's just it's a hard subject obviously and it's a hard thing to think about but when you have this millionaire pepperdine guy who has to go and start a school because of whatever uh it just doesn't sit with me well <laughs> hmm. yeah um yeah, for sure. There was something else I saw. I think it may have been on 116 as well, but um, so this is a book club on page 116. I think so. But yeah, I think it's just, I think the next kind of moving on to my next point that I'll bring up here mm-hmm. is the biggest thing that stuck out to me for this was just the the laws that were going in effect, especially when it comes to residential zoning and, and segregation mm-hmm. of basically people coming up with laws and legislation to prohibit black people from moving into their communities or areas, but also just, which, I mean, plays effect today, like that, that kind of stuff still happens today, but it's also like, so I think one of the biggest things for me when it comes to racial injustice and everything that come out, came out into the, like everything that came out after George Floyd and this like gigantic explosion of awareness for systematic injustice in our country, like, the thing that I saw a bunch of a bunch of people had different videos and explainers and stuff like that. But basically, if you look at it today, if you like, for example, like my grandfather was he he went to GE, he became a mechanical engineer like that was in the you know 40s, 50s that he was able to do that, build up wealth. So by the time it gets down three generations to me you know, like I, I grew up in a home that we had money we had because all of us had education and like just generation after generation of people getting in school, getting educated, getting good jobs pays off down the road and generation wise, typically, you know, and a lot of white families have had a much, have had a bigger head start on getting Mm -hmm. that generational wealth. Yeah. Um, Whereas a lot of black people didn't even have the opportunity to really establish and start establishing generational wealth until just, you know, one or two generations ago, if not even today, you know? Yeah. And so even like today where you see, new homes and i work in a civil engineering which does residential commercial all this different stuff i mean we 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 do townhome developments that are upwards of you know like four hundred thousand dollars right now because the market's mm-hmm. so crazy you know yeah. but then you have government subsidized housing or or area or housing in, in lesser areas and like you know some people and some black families that don't have the means 
get stuck in certain areas because they can't get out of it. And there's mm-hmm. no opportunity to have better schools and they yep. end up in bad school districts in bad areas. And it's just like perpetuating the cycle they can't get out of. And a lot of that stuff started in like the night in the 20th century. And so yeah. for me, it's just a big reminder of, of why we are today, where, you know, what, why and where we are today, you know? Yeah, that's definitely a big thing. Then the, the last thing I wanted to kind of wrap up this chapter with uh, that really stood out to me uh, with this chapter, you know, we kind of uh, kind of went away from the main topic of this chapter as far as uh, what it was about in that every the, the name of the chapter is remembering the complicity in the north. Uh, and so towards the end of the chapter, he says, Christians of the north have often been characterized as abolitionists, integrationists and open-minded citizens who want all people to have a chance at equality. Christians of the South, on the other hand, have been portrayed as uniformly racist, segregationist, and anti-democratic. The truth is far more complicated. And if that's not like a summation of, of, the, of everything that we've been talking about, then I don't know what is. And just the fact that the truth is far more complicated you can't just paint a broad stroke with the entire North and say they're anti-racist and you can't just paint a broad stroke and say the, uh, the entire South is a bunch of racist. That's just not, that's not true. And that's where we have to really start having these conversations and diving in and realizing uh, there's good people on both sides and there's bad people on both sides. And that's, that's how it is for everything. And letting that truth sit in with you and, and sink into your soul that the truth is far more complicated uh, with everything. I, I think that's where we can really start to open our minds and open our hearts to, uh, to new things and, and see what God wants to teach us through that. Mm. I'll, uh, I'll end us off reading the last sentence of every chapter. Cause I feel like you've done that so far and I need yeah. to continue that tradition yeah. here. And I mean, history um, doesn't rhyme, but it repeats itself, you know, for sure it goes on and talking basically about, you know, black people who left the South encountered similar patterns of race-based discrimination wherever they went. Bigotry obeys no boundaries. This is why Christians in every part of America have a moral and spiritual obligation to fight against the church's complicity with racism. I know we didn't talk about it a lot on this, on this chapter, but he does dive into just how churches were complicit in this as well, you know? Yeah. And so I don't mean to gloss over that, but um, I do think it's just a, another call and a reminder to us that like there is work to be done, no matter what region we are in, no matter what, how, you know, I hate using this term, but how woke you may think your <laughs> city is, or just how aware you might think you, even you are of racial segregation doesn't mm-hmm. mean that we don't, doesn't excuse any of us from putting in the hard work to yeah. uh, fight against this. So that's a good word to end on. Well, Scotty boy, uh, can I catch you here next week for chapter eight? Or yeah, for sure. Can you open your calendar for that? Uh, we'll be back here next week for chapter eight. It's on my yeah. calendar. Sounds so. good. Thanks, right. guys. Peace out. Bye. Peace.